Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WTPA Maui, Hawaii, KAKU Columbus, Ohio, WGRN Palinville, New York, WLPP Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. In New Orleans, on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ Seattle, Washington, KODX Red Bluff and Redding, California KFOI, Round Mountain, California, KKRN, and Minneapolis-St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, hi Nicole, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today Brad and Desi are out. I'm Angie Coiro sitting in. I'm the host of In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Well, my oh my, is this not interesting? The Wall Street Journal reports that the genital grabber-in-chief knew about payments to buy silence from Stormy Daniels and Playboy model Karen McDougal. As further covered by the Daily Beast, here we go. Donald Trump played a central role in the notorious hush payments to silence adult film star Stormy Daniels and former Playboy model Karen McDougal, who both allege they had affairs with the president, according to evidence obtained by federal investigators and cited by the Wall Street Journal. In August 2015, the journal notes, Trump met with American Media Inc. chief executive David Pecker and asked him what he could do to help his burgeoning campaign. Pecker offered to buy the stories of any woman accusing the candidate of sexual encounters, which is exactly what he did a year later when Trump asked him to kill a story from McDougal. Pecker's company paid $150,000 to silence McDougal, and Trump thanked him for his help. Journal also reports Trump was involved in or briefed on nearly every step of the agreements, with both McDougal and Daniels working through his former friend and longtime fixer, Michael Cohen. Goodness me, may I repeat, my, 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 my. In very much less cheerful news, in what country, under what political system, do politicians file suit to stop votes from being counted? In the good old U.S. of A. That's where. Under our alleged Democratic Republic, as noted in The Atlantic about Kemp versus Abrams in Georgia, quote, if the governor's race had taken place in another country, the State Department would have questioned its legitimacy. You can go back through any number of broadcasts to hear all the things that made this entire election suspect, not least of which candidate Kemp's race was overseen by Secretary of State Kemp. The GOP refused to concede there was anything unfair about that. There and in the undecided race in Arizona and the contended governor's race in Florida, Republicans have filed suit to impede or stop the vote count. 
to not count remaining votes, to ignore ballots that went missing and voting machines in storage while polling places went without, to deny democracy to Americans, to deny democracy to Americans. Now, in addition to the broadcast, let me recommend a very good rundown on the contended race races, that is, at Vox.com, which takes it down state by state. There is some good news in there. In Arizona, the GOP suddenly registered a problem with how votes were to be verified in different counties and tried to change the rules. Rules that, of course, they could have objected to any time before the election. They're whining, excuse me, their lawsuit got delayed by a judge on Thursday night. Now, this is good news, but also bad news, because although she did refuse to stop the count, she did agree to hear further arguments. Meanwhile, in Georgia, you got to hand it to Stacey Abrams, well, for any number of reasons, as the Democratic candidate for governor refuses to give up before every ballot is counted. Let's go to the AP, which paints a scene of some 2,000 voters fanning across the state to make sure that every vote is tallied. Abrams, who hopes to become the nation's first black female governor, sent out volunteers and campaign staff in search of votes that she hopes could still tilt the margin toward her. In a frantic effort to make sure every possible vote is counted, dozens of Abrams volunteers converged on a warehouse, a warehouse-turned-phone bank, near downtown. The goal, to reach voters who used a provisional ballot to make sure they take steps to ensure their vote is counted by Friday evening. Helen Brosnan, of, Helen Brosnan, can't talk, I'm so excited, of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, stood on a chair and shouted, how many calls do you think we can make? Can we make hundreds of calls? Let's do this. The AP goes on, Abrams' lawyer also explored options to ensure all votes are counted. Her campaign leaders say they believe she needs to pick up about 25,000 votes to force a runoff. At least 2,000 people across the nation are involved in the effort to find more votes, said State Senator Nikema Williams, the Georgia Director for Care in Action, which advocates for more than 2 million domestic workers and care workers statewide. I love that unions are getting in on this. Now, yesterday, Brad reported on an NAACP lawsuit in Georgia, and that was based on voting machine irregularities. Now, that same equality organization has weighed in further on another front in the Georgia mess. This is from its press release. NAACP, the nation's foremost civil rights organization, sent a letter to Georgia election officials just two days after the state's too-close-to-count election, too-close-to-call election, demanding a prompt investigation into reports that Georgia student voters were turned away from polling stations unable to vote. Others were improperly required to vote provisional ballots. Now, as you know from Brad, as you know from any number of sources, Provisional ballots have a good chance of not being counted at all, and that's true in a lot of states and a lot of jurisdictions. There are so many ways, so many different ways, that one has to 
have their ballot qualified. In some regions, you have to have your signature compared to a signature on the voting itself, on the envelope to the voting itself. In others, you have to be called on the phone or otherwise contacted to say, hey, is this your ballot? And if you miss that train, your vote is not counted. Back to the story from the NAACP. The letter cites two instances where university students who registered to vote using their school addresses at Albany State University were turned away even though their registration could be confirmed on the Secretary of State's website. NAACP has since been informed that more than two dozen students at Albany State were unable to vote regular ballots. It's now calling for a full investigation whether there was a pattern of interference. NAACP says it is deeply troubling that duly registered voters were initially denied the opportunity to cast ballots and that it took intervention by the NAACP to correct the denial of their rights. So they're going after them on two fronts. You know, as these races limp toward their conclusions, you can expect more here on the broadcast with the GOP fighting accurate vote counts all the way. You know, just in the last 24 hours, it has become harder to believe we had an election earlier this week. It seems so long ago. But with another mass shooting and the roaring fires in California, we're in emergency mode again. Can you imagine being in a second shooting after being at the earlier Las Vegas mass shooting at a country music fair? I mean, that's actually happened to people. Mass shootings are so common right now in America, it is possible for one human being to be at two different mass shootings. We have had almost as many shootings, mass shootings, as we have days this year. Almost as many shootings as days. That's just unconscionable. As of this writing, Malibu is the latest town under evacuation order in one of the Southern California fires. Now, between the two fires, Northern and Southern California, some of those 20,000 acres are burning. Some 20,000 acres. The Northern California fire, which wiped out the town of Paradise, is still blazing. That last check, only 5% under control. That's nothing. Five people have been confirmed dead Thursday morning. They were found in their vehicles. But the focus hasn't yet really turned to finding the dead, but to putting the flames out. A lot of people are unaccounted for. If you are affected by the fires, there is emergency counseling available. The Disaster Distress Helpline is at 1-800-985-5990. You can get immediate counseling. Anyone who may need help, dealing with the effects of the wildfires. So please be aware of that. The number again is 800-985-5990. we got so much more to come. Stick around for that. I'm Angie Coiro. This is The Bradcast. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cordero. Coming up in a few minutes, the nation's editor-at-large, Dee Dee Guttenplan. He's got a book out, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Majority. Right now, we're looking at the latest Trump-led efforts to change the rules on immigrants seeking asylum. Let's spend a little time with Amber McKinney. She's the assistant managing editor at Law360, where she leads the site's coverage of immigration and a lot of other areas. She's also co-host on a podcast that's a Loeb Award finalist podcast, Law360's weekly Pro say, Amber, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me on, Angie. So let's work back from the latest news. Friday morning, Trump announced that applications for asylum would now only be accepted from those who show up at a designated point of entry. So those who just cross the border at some random spot they can access won't be considered for asylum. Can we start with the fact that he's doing this by proclamation? Does everyone agree that that is a legally valid way to change policy? Uh, They do not. This is a big point of contention right now. Um, We've seen this many times with the Trump administration, that they will roll out something very quickly that's about immigration, and then it will get challenged by just about everybody in court. We saw that with the travel ban and its various iterations, and this feels very familiar. Um, the, uh, The asylum changes that they've issued by proclamation go into effect just after midnight tonight, so it's a very quick turnaround. And we've already seen the first lawsuit filed. The ACLU has filed one today. I do not expect that to be the last of the challenges. I think we're going to see a lot more. Um, and some of the arguments they're making, I think, also feel familiar. Mm-hmm. The, the government says that Trump has this authority under the Immigration and Nationality Act. They're citing the same broad provision that let him enact the travel ban that was ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the ACLU and other groups say, not so fast with this one. There's another part of that same law that specifically says that people have the ability to seek asylum no matter how they came into the country. There doesn't have to be a set point where they do it. They can do it anywhere. They're also saying that this could violate several international treaties that we have that have provisions about refugees and asylum seekers. Well, let's talk about trying to put a number on this. I don't know if it's possible to do that because we can only guess at how many people are successfully crossing the border outside of ports of entry. Is there anything released by the Trump administration that would help us to quantify exactly how much this would change what's happening under current policy? released a lot of statements that say that this is a tremendous problem, that many asylum seekers are, in fact, doing this um, in bad faith, that they are not eligible for asylum. But there's been very little data from the Trump side to back that up. So we don't have great numbers on what exactly this will change. And oftentimes in these asylum cases, because this has never been an issue before that you had to come in through a certain port, there just isn't data about who's getting asylum that was already in the country from somewhere else versus who came in the report of entry and claimed asylum there. You know, I don't mean to be petty, but according to the the, uh, proclamation, uh, they're going to be talking to, the administration is going to be discussing with the Mexican government how to deal with large groups of non-citizens coming toward the U.S. border from Mexico. 
And they say these are efforts to deter, dissuade, and return such aliens before they physically enter the United States territory. It's just weird to hear the word aliens again. Is that a a legal term or is that, again, an effort to dehumanize people? So the term aliens does appear often in our nation's immigration laws. It's one of those holdover terms from years and years ago that continues to appear in these legal documents. Um, Not to say that Trump has ever been friendly about immigrants at all, so it's a fair question. But that term in particular doesn't sound any specific alarm bells for me since I'm usually looking at these legal proclamations and the actual text of the legislation. Mm. Um, But but what we are seeing here, just generally from this administration, is yet another attack on immigrants in a way that's very clear that they're trying to make this – as difficult and onerous as possible, even for people with valid claims of asylum. This is very similar to what we saw that everyone was so outraged about when they were separating children from their parents at the border, and they gave a rationale that was an echo of what they're saying now, that this was a way to just say, hey, if you come to our borders, these are the kinds of things that are going to happen to you, and maybe less people will show up. Since you mentioned the children crossing the borders, that takes us to another article also on Law 360, and this is by Laura Ann Wood. And this is a class suit where now 19 cities and counties have joined that class suit as of Wednesday, and they're appealing to a California judge. They want to block the government's proposed rule changes about detention of immigrant minors. This obviously has some ties to the horrors that we saw with minors being taken into government custody. What changes are they asking for in this? What First of all, what changes? Changes is the Trump administration trying to codify? So the Trump administration has been trying to sort of go back in time for a lot of these things and and um, make sure that they can keep what they call the zero tolerance policy, and what and that's what led to the family separations. It basically meant that people show up uh, at the border if they're detained, then because no one is going to be um, let into the country and just given a court date to show up later, they're all going to be detained, that the Trump administration said it meant they had to separate the kids. That's the kind of thing that was prohibited by something called the Flores Agreement. It was Mm -hmm. part of a a settlement of a lawsuit earlier that said that children can't be detained for certain amounts of time. And um, it's led to a lot of additional fights now about what is and is not okay in these detention scenarios. The Trump administration's taken a really hard line. They want to set up tents um, everywhere and and detain anyone who crosses the border illegally. They're saying that about these asylum seekers, too, so it all sort of does come full circle. And what we've seen as the drumbeat, not just in recent weeks, but over the last two years, have been more and more lawsuits about anything the Trump administration has tried to do in immigration. So we're seeing it over detention policies. We've seen it over... Um, the DACA uh, rollback that they tried to implement. We're seeing it over asylum. We certainly saw it over the travel ban. It's really been a very hectic few years in the court system for challenges to Trump immigration policies. I want to get to DACA in just a moment, but I first want to back up to something in the, in the Flores Agreement that says that the children, minors who are taken into custody, need to have sufficient access to health care, and that includes mental health care and language services so they can communicate and legal representation so we don't have, say, three-year-olds in court representing themselves, which you'd never believe we've actually seen, but we have. So is any, to your knowledge, is sufficient access to mental and health care, at least, if not legal representation currently being given to minors in custody? 
So the government says that it is, that there is um, sufficient care in these facilities. There hasn't been a great deal of oversight that's been vetted by outside groups. So a little bit this, of this is take it at their word. I mean, we've seen over um, the height of when people were the most upset about family separation, we saw even people like senators and members of the House going to detention facilities, trying to get in to view them, and being blocked from having that access. So there's a lot of debate about exactly how much care these children are getting. Let's move on to DACA. And of course, the DREAM program has been a target of the Trump administration for some time. What are they trying to do as of this week? Well, what we saw with DACA is that the Trump administration last year tried to roll back the program entirely. It was um, then, of course, people sued in district courts around the country, courts in California, New York, and Washington, D.C., all ruled against the administration, and there was a nationwide injunction barring Trump from rolling that back. What we saw this week is that the Ninth Circuit was the first appeals court to rule on this, and they said that Trump can't rule it back immediately. That injunction stays in place, so DACA is temporarily safe. Um, This was a really lengthy and um, substantive ruling. It was about 99 pages from the judges there. So they got into a a lot of the arguments the government's making and said that ultimately they think the DACA recipients are likely to succeed in their arguments. They think that the DACA recipients um, are likely to be able to prove that the government was capricious and arbitrary in this action, and also that there may be some constitutional violations of the Equal Protection Clause. I'm sure that even further endeared the Ninth Circuit to Donald Trump. What was his response? Yeah. So they're not happy, of course. The the Trump administration, um, including the DOJ, has come out and said that they are going to fight this tooth and nail. The DOJ has already said that they are looking forward to vindicating themselves at the Supreme Court. So I think we're really on a trajectory to get back there. Um, We're at a stage right now where, because it is about a preliminary injunction, we haven't gotten to a final ruling from the Ninth Circuit on the full merits of this case. Um, But that hasn't stopped the Trump administration from asking the Supreme Court to go ahead and review it. What we might see is the Supreme Court take a little bit of a step back and say, hey, hey, we'll just wait and see what happens with the merits of this and get to it later. Or we could see the Supreme Court take them up on this and and jump right into it. They definitely did that with the travel ban, so it's not an unheard of step. But one way or another, I think it's just a matter of time before the justices have to hear a case about DACA. You know, Amber, I think one of the things about these stories is they come thick and fast. There's so much else going on, election coverage, fire coverage. And I'm wondering if there's anything in particular related to these stories that you feel has been undercovered that you want to get out there to people. I mean, I think the overall narrative is what I think gets a little lost because we talk about them all individually. But if you take just one step back and get the bird's eye view, it really is an onslaught of um, actions from the Trump administration. And it really shows how much they think that the current immigration policies, um, the ones from the Obama administration in particular, are a threat to America. They've made it very clear. I mean, in the lead up to the midterms, I think this is covered piecemeal, but just when you run down through all of it, Trump said he would send troops to the southern border. They talked about the caravan endlessly. They, um, Trump told reporters that he would try to um, ex- issue an executive order to terminate birthright citizenship. They proposed detaining asylum seekers in tents, and then they followed through on some of those asylum changes today. So it is just the volume of changes that I think are the most noteworthy here. 
I'm really asking you to do a little bit of crystal ball work here, and, and you don't need to answer it if you don't want to. But I'm just wondering if you think the results of this week's election will have any impact on how much the Trump administration is going to keep trying to forward this agenda and how well it would succeed in the legislature. Well, I would love to give a really rosy outlook here and say that we'll come to some bipartisan consensus between the two um, houses of government, but I think we're not going to see that. Uh, One of my great reporters, Nicole Norea, reported on this for us right after the midterms, and what people were telling her was essentially, yeah, we may see some proposals from the Democratic-controlled House. That's likely, and we may even get some traction in the House. But you're not going to see the same response out of the Senate since it's still in Republican hands. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump has made immigration such a cornerstone of his campaigning when he was becoming president and in the actions he's taken in the two years that he's been in office that it's very unlikely that anything that is considered a middle-of-the-road solution would be signed by Donald Trump. So I think we're just in for a lot more of these fights for the next few years. Amber, I can see why Law of 360 put you on the Pro Se podcast. It's wonderful to talk to you, and thank you very much. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Amber McKinney, Assistant Managing Editor at Law 360. You know, I'm trying to sprinkle some good news in through today's show. There's evidence today that even very nasty people can do very good things, and I want to give credit where due. The actor James Woods, who is no friend of those who oppose fake news and hate-mongering, opened up his Twitter feed to help connect people who've been separated by the California fires. Many, many tweets are using the hashtag CampfireJamesWoods, posting lost and found friends and relatives. It is heartrending to see the pleas for connection in the timeline and to see the reunions in real time. So, fair is fair. Kudos to James Woods on that. Speaking of Twitter, another update on a story Brad has been covering. The White House has refused to remove video tweeted out by Sarah Huckabee Sanders that alleges reporter Jim Costa was aggressive with the White House intern who tried to take his microphone away. Now, this latest analysis comes from the Associated Press, and it's worth sharing in detail. The AP is reporting that the video quote, appears to have been doctored to make Acosta look more aggressive than he was during an exchange with a White House intern, an independent expert said yesterday. Now, mind you, there have been lots of claims that this was doctored by various people, some of whom seem more qualified than others, but the AP brought an expert on board. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders tweeted the video, a frame-by-frame comparison with an Associated Press video of the same incident, shows that the one tweeted by Sanders appears to have been altered to speed up Acosta's arm movement as he touches the intern's arm. Now, that's according to Abba Shapiro, who is an independent video producer. He examined the footage at the AP's request. He noticed the frames in the tweeted video were frozen to slow down the action, allowing it to run the same length as the AP one. Come on. That's just... That's just evil. That's just evil. Shapiro said the alteration is too precise to be an accident. He trains instructors to use video editing software. This guy knows what he is doing. He also noted that the tweeted video doesn't have any audio. And that makes it easier to alter, he said. 
it's unlikely the differences could be explained by technical glitches or by video compression. A reduction in the video size to enable it to play more smoothly on some sites, because the slowing of the video and the acceleration that followed are too precise to be an accident. Once again, this posits the, the guy who's in the White House against the reporters, the journalists. If you're a reporter who wants to ask about that or anything else, mind your manners. You just may join Jim Acosta in Reporter Siberia. This from the New York Times asked how long Mr. Acosta's pass would be suspended, because of course he's suspended now from White House coverage. Mr. Trump, God, that's so respectful. Mr. Trump replied, as far as I'm concerned, I haven't made that decision, but it could be others also. He's threatening other reporters. He made his comments while speaking with reporters on the South Lawn. When you're in the White House, the Times quotes Trump, there is a very sacred place for me, a very special place. This man actually used the word sacred. He wouldn't know sacred if it bit him in the butt. You have to treat the White House with respect. Really? You have to treat the presidency with respect. Really? The removal of Mr. Acosta's credential after a tense news conference on Wednesday when the CNN correspondent aggressively questioned Trump, they said Mr. Trump, has raised alarms among press freedom groups that say the president is encroaching on journalists' basic right to cover the government. But wait, there's more. He went on to insult other members of the White House press corps, including April D. Ryan. Boy, he really doesn't like April Ryan. She's one of my journalist heroes. The correspondent for American Urban Radio Networks and one of a small number of African-American reporters who cover the administration. Hmm, must be getting uppity. You talk about someone that's a loser... She doesn't know what the hell she's doing, Mr. Trump said of Ms. Ryan in an unprompted diatribe. She gets publicity and then she gets a pay raise or a contract with, I think, CNN. He just makes stuff up. He just makes it up. Going on with a quote, but she's very nasty and she shouldn't be. She shouldn't be. You've got to treat the White House and the office of the presidency with respect. Again, with the respect. Mr. Trump also laced into another African-American journalist, what a coincidence, Abby Phillip of CNN, who asked the president if he wanted the new acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, to rein in the investigation led by special counsel Robert Mueller. President replied to Ms. Phillip, what a stupid question that is. What a stupid question. But I watch you a lot. You ask a lot of stupid questions. Another reporter getting uppity, apparently. In a statement, CNN said Ms. Phillips did not ask a stupid question. In fact, she asked the most pertinent question of the day. You know, on the fake news fronts, if, if, if we're all in against fake news, if the powerhouses of Facebook and Twitter are, as they say, working hard not to contribute to disinformation and ignorance, let's go back to that post from Sarah Sanders, for example. Let's go back to the video. Why is that still up? But some media does work to deconstruct all this. The Washington Post, the latest, they deconstructed Trump's post-election, quote, news conference. And they found, not surprisingly, a lot of problems. 
The Post starts out noting that the running count that they keep of false or misleading statements by Trump is over 6,400. Now, they don't say lies. They do not say lies. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Some highlights from the column, which is now up at the Post. They start out with an easy one because it comes down to being able to count. His quote, 55 is the largest number of Republican senators in the last 100 years. False. Republicans had a 55-seat majority in the Senate from 1997 to 2000 and from 2000 to 2006. That's from the Senate Historian's Office, which, unlike Trump, does not have a record of making stuff up. Also, quoting statistics from 1921 to 1927, they've got that down as false. Quote, of the 11 candidates we campaigned with during the last week, nine won last night. No. The Post finds 13 total. Eight of them won. Three of them lost. Kemp and Scott are still not certain, but they are ahead. Our colleague, they say, Philip Bump, calculated that Trump's endorsement record on Twitter stands at 50-50. 26 wins, 26 losses, including races where the candidate is either leading or lagging in the count. Let's go on to his tax returns, okay? Back to the post. People don't understand tax returns, he said. Now, I did do a financial disclosure filing of over 100 pages, I believe. You believe you did it? Which is in the offices. And I guess we filed that now three times. You get far more from that than you ever would from a tax return. The post? He has long refused to release a copy of his income tax despite previous promises he would do so. He argues the financial disclosure required by the Federal Election Commission is superior to the information contained in a tax return. False. The tax return provides a lot of information that is not contained in the disclosure form. Financial disclosure forms require only that the assets be reported with a broad range. A tax return would have the values to the dollar. Two more. Let's just do two more, although there's more than this in the article. Nobody turns over a return when it's under audit, okay? Wrong. <laughs> the Post is good at this. The first president to make public his tax returns was Richard Nixon, and he was under audit at the time. That's according to a summary at TaxHistory.org. Nixon released them as news reports raised questions about extensive tax deductions that he had taken to greatly reduce his liability. Skipping ahead, in fact, Nixon made the comment while defending his tax deductions. Hmm. Back to Trump. A poll came out recently where my numbers with Hispanics and with African Americans are the highest, the best they've ever been. That had, that took place two or three days ago. The poll, citing what poll? We don't know yet. I have the best numbers with African Americans and Hispanic Americans than I've ever had before. You know, if superlatives were poison, he'd be dead. The Post comment, Trump loves to cite the Rasmussen poll. There you go. Which already leans heavily toward Republicans. That is a cherry-picked result from the poorly rated outfit that relies heavily on automated dialing. Everybody hangs up on automated dialing. Reputable polls, it says, consistently find that Trump has placed 
very low support among African Americans. Quinnipiac in August August found that 9% of black voters approved, compared with 85% who disapproved. Gallup's monthly tracking surveys, based on real interviews with roughly 1,000 people each, finds Trump at 13% approval among black adults. Trump has never been below 8% or above 15% in their monthly averages. Oh, there's more. I'm not going to read you anymore, but that it's just... You, you have to be grateful that there are news organizations doing this, even though they get faulted for not using the word lies. Now, I, I've gone back and forth as a journalist myself on whether media outlets should say lie or lying when reporting well, just about anything that comes out of Trump's mouth. You'd think it would be obvious. And like I said, I've gone back and forth. You can see it in my Twitter account. I've actually fallen on the side of those who say, don't say lie. Don't say lie. And the reason is, lying assumes facts, not in evidence. Lying ascribes intent. Do we know that Trump, I mean, know that he means to lie? Well, We have got an awful lot of psychologists and psychiatrists who are concerned that he looks and sounds delusional. Dangerously so. Narcissistic. Dangerously so. There's a possibility, a possibility. He he doesn't even know he's lying. Even if there's that small possibility, you have to give some credit to news agencies that refuse to say lie until they know that he is making that deliberate choice. It's not appropriate for them to say lie. And that's why I've stopped doing it. I've stopped doing it. For those of us who want to be reliable sources of news, it's not appropriate to say things that you can't prove, that you can't thoroughly document. You know, something on a whole different front that I I don't doubt you've seen in the news today is the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht. When I first heard that German word as a kid, I I thought it sounded beautiful. A night of crystal. It sounded like a snowy Christmas scene with a frozen pond gleaming in the moonlight. And of course, that's not the case. It was a cool, ugly act, a harbinger of what was to come for Jews and other minorities under Hitler. It's named not after crystal, but after all the broken glass from storefronts and windows and doors smashed as Nazis, racist nationalists, if that sounds familiar, as Nazis left in the street after an unprecedented attack on Jewish neighborhoods in Austria, Germany, and what used to be Czechoslovakia, the ruins of religious institutions, of houses, and of businesses. The word Kristallnacht falls short of telling the worst of it. It wasn't just smashed glass. It wasn't just ruined temples. At least 90 Jewish people were left dead. And a lot of experts think that is a low estimate. More of them, they also believe, committed suicide in the wake of Kristallnacht. And some 30,000 Jewish men were hauled off to extermination camps. 
Of course, this is especially blood-chilling to note now with the renaissance of American Nazism and its chief enabler in the White House. The worst thing we can possibly do is confidently confine this memory to the past. It is too damned close to being the present if we continue on our current path. There is a lot more in the news. Stand by to hear the latest about Trump's royal edict on undocumented immigrants, plus more on the DACA decision from the Ninth Circuit. That is coming up on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80 percent of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at Brad bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1952. That was the day that the labor movement lost Philip Murray. Philip was born in Scotland in 1886 to an Irish Catholic family. His father was a coal miner and a union leader. Philip followed his father into the mines at just the age of 10 years old. The father and son made the trip to the Pennsylvania coal fields together when Philip was just 16. They saved enough money and then sent for the rest of their family. One day, Philip got into an altercation with one of his bosses. Not only was he fired, his entire family was kicked out of their company home. From that point on, Philip was dedicated to the union cause as the only hope for working people. He quickly rose through the ranks of the United Mine Workers, becoming vice president by the time he was 33. He worked closely with United Mine Workers president John L. Lewis. During the 1930s, there became a nationwide drive to organize industrial workers. Philip was appointed to lead the Steelworkers Organizing Committee, a key sector for the industrial effort. The Steelworker campaign met with historic success. They reached a collective bargaining agreement with U.S. Steel, the giant of the industry. Philip went on to become the first president of the United Steelworkers of America, as well as president of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Under his leadership, industrial labor became a powerful force. But that force was checked by the passage of the anti-union Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. The anti-communist hysteria of the Red Scare also took its toll on the CIO, forcing Philip to expel some of the most radical unions from the organization. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. I'm Angie Claro, in for Brad and Desi today on the broadcast. So Amber just mentioned Matthew Baker, which brings me to the weirdest report from CNN. News reports there start with this headline, quote, Whitaker backlash prompts concern at the White House. Okay, reasonable so far. But then there's this. There is a growing concern, start that over. 
My mouth is not working today. I think it's a function of how much news there is and how overwhelming it all is. Anyway, back to the story. There is a growing sense of concern inside the White House over the negative reaction to Matthew Whitaker being tapped as acting attorney general after Jeff Sessions' abrupt firing. Whitaker, who is Sessions' chief of staff, has faced criticism since Wednesday afternoon's announcement for his previous comments on special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Okay, this is where it turns weird. Several senior officials told CNN they were surprised by the criticism, and they believe it could potentially jeopardize Whitaker's chances of remaining in the post if it continues to dominate the headlines. Savor that for a minute. They were surprised at the criticism. Were they utterly unfamiliar with his record of cracks and, yes, criticism of Mueller and the investigation? This is the guy who was talking to a pastor on the Chosen Generation, oh, that name, the Chosen Generation radio show. This clip was played Friday morning on NPR. Whitaker said this. The left is trying to sow this, uh, this, this theory that essentially uh, Russians interfered with the U.S. election, which has been proven false. Now, what's likewise weird is that Morning Edition spent five minutes talking about this, examining the story, with one of Whitaker's good friends, who answered pretty much every question with, hey, you know, you got to get to know him. Give him some time. Wait till you see what he does. <sighs> okay. That is as though Whitaker's obvious conspiracy theory about the left should disqualify him from this position before we have to get to know him by discovering the worst. Surely some people at the White House and Whitaker's good friend found all of his comments from before, surely some of them? If not, why? And if so, why wasn't the word spread before his candidacy for the position was announced? Why wasn't it widely known in the White House? Now, I'm in the middle of reading Bob Woodward's book on the Trump White House, and that may offer an explanation. That goes back to Trump being unpredictable, idiosyncratic, and an out-of-control narcissist that no one can collar who, even in positions of power, can be guaranteed to know what the bleep he's going to do next? Who? Probably no one. The folks at the White House are shocked, shocked, I tell you, at the backlash. More good news. And we, we started out with it, so let's finish with it. From the Great Falls Tribune via the AP, a federal judge in Montana has blocked construction of the $8 billion Keystone XL pipeline to allow more time to study the project's potential environmental impact. The Keystone XL has been at least temporarily stopped. A judge in Montana? I, 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 I don't know why I find that weird, but I do. We're going to go back to the AP. The Great Falls Tribune reports U.S. District Judge Brian Morris's order on Thursday came as Calgary-based TransCanada was preparing to build the first stages of the oil pipeline in northern Montana. 
Environmental groups had sued TransCanada and the U.S. Department of State in federal court in Great Falls. Morris says the government analysis didn't fully study the cumulative effects of greenhouse gas emissions, the effect of current oil prices on the pipeline's viability, or included updated modeling of potential oil spills. Three fronts. He stopped this on three different fronts. Greenhouse gas, oil prices, which would determine whether the pipeline is viable or worthwhile, or possibly mistaken or manipulated or just plain wrong information on potential oil spills. That's big. That's big. And you know, I I am sorry to be petty, but I would love to have seen Trump's face at the mere mention of greenhouse gases. You know, part of the climate change hoax perpetrated by lying lefties. Hey, this just in from Brad, and uh, he's supposed to be on vacation or taking the day off. You cannot stop Brad from working. Now, this was released by Vote Vets. Love that organization. We starts out this statement, which comes from three retired generals who are calling for a fair vote count. Wesley Clark, Major General Paul Eaton, Brigadier General Stephen Anderson, all made this statement, quote, We, the men and women who served under our command, and everyone who served in the armed forces, swore an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States. Many died, and many were wounded protecting it, and our sacred right to vote and see that vote counted. That release from Voice Vets, from Vote Vets, goes on to say, it is appalling that Trump Republicans, man, they're calling him out by name. It is appalling that Trump Republicans in Florida, Georgia, and Arizona are fighting to stop counting all the votes as they lose ground. It dishonors everything our troops have fought for and died for. We want to be very clear. Taking actions to stop counting votes is not only undemocratic, it is downright un-American. Thanks to Brad for slipping that in under the wire. Hey, more good news. You know, if I ran a tabloid, I would, I would headline this story, Ruth Ginsburg, immortal? With a lot of question marks and exclamation points. I mean... She doesn't stop. After breaking three ribs, she is up and around. She's released from the hospital, and she's working from home. She's just amazing. She's amazing. And thank God, because we need her on the court. Do we ever need her on the court? As some more optimism from a guy who knows what he is talking about. Dee Dee Guttenberg has a lot of travel and much, much recording pardon me, reporting. Told you I can't talk today. He's got a lot of travel and a lot of reporting under his belt right now. He's the editor-at-large at The Nation. And he has a new book out called The Next Republic, The Rise of a Radical New Majority. 
Guttenberg profiles up-and-comers in progressive circles who are organizing, who have run for office, who are generating new energy in the movement. I was very lucky to be able to talk to him a few weeks ago. So here are some excerpts from our conversation. And I love this vision. I love this image of you discovering bits of essentially an old society. Well, when I, would, when I was traveling around Ohio, I would come across these things like the Bow Federal Building in Canton or the Rubber Dome in Akron, which were obviously beautifully built structures. And the Bow Federal Building is this incredible curved front on the streets. It's got all these murals inside uh, documenting Ohio history. And finally, I came across one that had a cornerstone and the cornerstone said, Project, I don't know, 1132 PWA. And that's when I realized PWA stands for Public Works Administration. And I realized that was the WPA, the New Deal, was this lost civilization. Part of that was, yes, there was a time when government understood that expanding the, the commons, the, the thing that we all own together, the public sphere, was both good economics and good social policy because it created these wonderful things that, are, that we still have, that we still benefit from. If you go to the Cleveland Public Library, you see these wonderful WPA murals of bridging the Ohio River. You know, if you go to post offices all across the country, if they have murals in them, they were probably painted by somebody on the, on the artist's project. Mm -hmm. um, so there was the role of the, there was government understanding its role and its potential. And at the same time, because Roosevelt had to fight World War II, he had to pay for this incredible mobilization and produ production of, you know, planes, ships, tanks, all, all the things you need to fight a war. Like Lincoln, he had to make incredible changes to the economy so that they, they raised the top rate on taxes to 95 percent. They started an estate tax so that wealth as well as income could be taxed. And, of course, they ran up an incredible federal deficit. And the result of all this was something that economic historians call the Great Compression. So if you look at income distribution in the U.S. from 1939 to 1970, instead of looking as it does now, like a, a huge pyramid with a, a few millionaires and billionaires, as Bernie says, at the top, and you know the rest of the 99% at the bottom, what it, what it looked like during those years was like a, a diamond that had been squashed at each end. So it bulges out in the middle, a big middle, and then a small upper class and a small lower class. And that was the great American middle class. And that came about because you had this jobs program. You had people who went and served in the war and then came back and were able, like members of my family, to go to college on the GI Bill, mm -hmm. again, which was free public college or, in fact, free college anywhere for people who had served in the armed forces. Well, that was a huge cohort of people. And then you had programs like federal housing guarantees, you know, federal home administration. You had this vast this vast middle class that was created during those years and that lasted, its long tail lasted up until really the 1980s. Mm -hmm. There were people who were vehemently opposed, and I mean, it was so vehemently opposed that they essentially put a stop to his presidency, which seemed to be going for a lifetime. I have to wonder about what we're seeing now where it is the pyramid, where there are so many at the top and so little money at the bottom. How much of that could be recreated at this point? Well, you know, Roosevelt always faced opposition. He, he made the, his great speech in 1936 about economic royalists, malefactors of great wealth. Uh, he understood that you can't have a more equal society 
without somebody paying for it. Mm -hmm. And he was quite clear about who was going to pay for it. And he was quite clear. He said, I rejoice in my enemies. I mean, he knew who his enemies were. And instead of deciding that he was going to temporize and, you know, try and compromise with them, which is what the Democratic Party's been doing for the last 20 years, he, he stuck to his guns. But it's also true that Roosevelt's coalition, his political coalition, was built in part on an alliance with Southern Democrats who were committed to maintaining white supremacy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so at the end of World War II, when you had all of these social programs and this great mobilization, and again, politics is downstream of culture. So you had big cultural changes in the 1930s. You know, you had African-Americans, Mexican-Americans becoming much more assertive about their rights, beginning to organize farm workers' unions and, you know, the cannery strikes and all, all of these things happening on the West Coast, but lots of things happening on the East Coast and in the South. And the Southern Democrats were terrified. They were terrified that this newly empowered African-American cohort who had fought in the war you know, and then Harry Truman desegregated the armed forces. A. Philip Randolph had forced Roosevelt by threatening to march on Washington to institute, you know, a federal equal opportunities program so that all federal employment, there was no discrimination on the basis of race. Mm -hmm. um, so they were threatened by that and they split off and they, you know, they red baited, they destroyed the most progressive unions through the Taft-Hartley law and through making union leaders, you know, sign anti-communist oaths, which many of the most progressive leaders couldn't do because they, in fact, were communists. Uh, so, yeah, capital fought back, and, you know, eventually they won. Dede Guttenberg, the book is The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. And finally this hour, I want to say thank you. And let me just guess that I'm speaking for a lot of people Thank you to the thousands of folks, one estimate says 6,000 people, who hit the streets on Thursday from Times Square to San Francisco and cities small and large in between. These Americans stood up to let the powers that be know that taking down the Mueller investigation will not go unnoticed. Not only did they take a stand for the record, they may if we can be optimistic here for a moment, they may have encouraged Democrats, especially the new ones who helped take over the House, to stand up to Trump, knowing that people are behind them insisting on justice. To stand up to Trump. Anything we can do to strengthen their hand is a good thing. So to those folks, who gave up their time and strength to go on record in such an impressive way. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that is a wrap for today on the broadcast. Let us see what new developments we'll bring you in the next go-round. Until then, I'm Angie Coiro, wishing you good luck world.